Hi guys. Hey Gabrielle. It's the end of the week. Here we are. Um, today we have an interesting topic, I think. It's a debate a little bit. Um, so I'll say that when I started thinking about working more with food banks a couple of years ago and thinking about food insecurity, I started doing research and very quickly I saw there was a whole world about food waste and food rescue and food banks and it all kind of melded together and everyone sort of talked about it like one was a solution for the other. On the one hand we have all of this these people who are hungry and on the other hand we have food that's not being eaten so we put them together and then we've solved two problems we've got reduced waste and we've fed hungry people like this is so great um, and I and I thought okay well that, that sounds cool that's that's you know compelling and it got me thinking about food waste and subsequently we've done some food waste work at, at LID um, but I think as I and then with you guys got and other colleagues got more into doing these projects definitely thought sometimes like is one thing is food is is this actually the solution for the other side like does this really go together um so i thought that would be an interesting topic so uh what tell us about the projects you've done that kind of bring you to to be in this conversation you and i we got to the chance to work with the world wildlife fund and uh it was a project that was focused on food loss or waste um, the idea is they wanted to come up with uh solutions to uh, food waste hotspots that were happening anywhere in the supply chain between the farm to the retailer. And so uh, we worked for about eight months on this project. It was uh, a long project. We did a lot of on-sites. We went to, we visited farms. Uh, we visited processing facilities, food processing facilities. Uh, we went to coolers where they cool down these, these, uh, these fresh fruit really quickly to get them, in, enter them into the cold chain. Uh, we went to uh, distribution centers of retailers as well as retailer stores. Uh, and all that uh, came to, into two different reports, one for fresh strawberries, the second for frozen potatoes, um, where we identified the hotspots and we came up with uh, solutions that could address each of those hotspots based on their importance and uh, tried to come up with ways to save the food and, and have it uh, be used for human consumption. Yes. So, and those reports are coming out in 2024. Yes. We're Had a known quite move. hopeful. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> And Isaac, how about you? Yeah. Um, well, I, I was really brought into kind of the, the food banking world. It was actually my, one of my first projects at LID, uh, working with Jeff Hamilton uh, and the, the Greater Cleveland Food Bank. Uh, so that was really interesting, a lot different from what I had seen in my previous work. Um, but that was a really good experience. And then that really just brought me into the extended world. So doing work with Feed More Western New York and Buffalo, working with the Greater Chicago Food Depository, and then working with a variety of food banks in Canada. And now um, you have many food bank clients. And now we do. It's kind of exploded over the last uh, six to nine months with the, the Food Banks Canada network. Yeah. Um, but it's been a really, really rewarding experience. And just like getting going with all these different projects has opened up uh, a lot of different opportunities, but also a lot of learning yeah. about food rescue, food waste. All I think all these projects, the World Wildlife Fund, the Food Bank projects, I find them interesting because they're, they've got a supply chain element and a business element, but they also all have some kind of social or environmental aspect to them also where mm -hmm. we as the team have to learn a whole bunch of laws or environmental science or social policy or something else to understand what's going on. And I find that interesting. So, um, so uh, I think we should dive a little more into what is food waste and where and what is the food at food banks and how are these two things connected mm -hmm. if if they are connected 
So, Dan, I'll turn to you first to say, can you tell us a little bit about when we say food waste, that is a very wide range of things. And sure. can you sort of describe the landscape of that? Sure. So I think just to start off with a definition, food waste would be any food that is grown, which does not end up being consumed by humans. Um, and so I think just a general statistic from Refit is a third of all food produced in the U.S. Um, does not end up in human consumption. So uh, the scale of it is quite important. I think that translates to something like 149 billion meals annually. Um, so it's, uh, it's a big problem and one if we can completely solve would address a lot of uh, what these food banks are, are trying to, to do, which is to, to feed people who are in food insecurity situations. Um, so as for the food waste itself, it can happen at multiple stages of the supply chain, anywhere from the farm level yeah where the food doesn't make it out of the furrows for whatever reason, whether it's weather, pest pressure, um, labor constraints, financial constraints of the farm, um, whether it doesn't make it past the inspection stages of a cooler where you're trying to um, cool the, the, the berries down into the cold chain. Uh, at a processing facility, you might have lots of uh, raw, unprocessed food that's just falling off of a conveyor belt, and that's producing hundreds of millions of tons a year of waste of just a specific uh, food category of potatoes. Um, and then a little bit downstream of that, you've got waste at the handoff point between these um, you know, producers or suppliers of food, as well as the, uh, when they're trying to sell it to the retailers, they might not accept the quality of the food that they're getting. You might lose um, some quality in transport and when you're exchanging hands. Uh, and then at the retailers, the retailers are very effective at not losing food in their distribution center because it's they're touching it once or twice between when it comes in and when it goes out. And um, But at the retailers, where you're at the grocery stores, there's quite a significant amount of waste happening there. The issue with that is that's when you have the least amount of shelf life remaining for the fruit to get it into the people's hands. And this is probably you know, one of the important things we're going to talk about today. Yeah, and and fruit and all other kinds, especially perishables of all sorts, meats and deli and cheese and everything. Yeah, that's big also. goods, everything. Um, and then, of course, there's food waste in people's homes and at restaurants and all, you know, all the places that we eat food. There's always excess food and um, there's a lot of excess food. Right? We live in a, we live in abundance and so, um, okay. And I think, yeah, um, We'll go to food banks. I think there's a maybe a I would call it a misconception, but maybe like a general um, idea in the public mind that like the food at the food bank comes because like I put a can into a big bin at the grocery store or at my kid's school or something. Um, but that's actually not really where the food at the food bank comes from for the most part. So where does the food come from? Yeah, it it is maybe a little bit misleading or. Uh, Conceptually, that's part of it, yes, um, but not as as big as some of us might think. Right. So, at the surface, obviously, we see uh, us personally making donations. Part of that donation does go to the food bank, um, but at a high level, uh, the food bank purchases goods, uh, whether it's food service, whether it's manufacturers. Right. I think that'd be a surprise to people that the food bank yeah. actually uses like raises money and then spends a lot of money buying food. And yeah, it's like kind of obvious when you think about it. Mm -hmm. But I bet if you asked 
kind of the average person, they would not actually think that was the case. Yeah. So they do a lot of purchasing. They get a lot of donations from the public, but also from manufacturers, right. distributors. Um, and I think one of the things that, that I've seen, especially working with the U.S. and working in Canada, is just a contrast between the two systems, mm -hmm. uh, where in the U.S. they rely a lot more on uh, like federal programs. Mm -hmm. The government USDA, is actually US Department of Agriculture, supporting it, yeah. Uh, supporting them either through funding or, or through uh, actual food, food donations. donations. Yeah. Um, whereas in Canada, it's, a, it's maybe a lot you know, the organization is maybe not as firm or as concrete as in the U.S. Right. Um, we saw that in the Food Banks Canada project. Uh, a lot of the food that is brought into a food bank and uh, delivered to the end users actually comes from within those communities. Mm -hmm. So about 70%, uh, based off the data that we had, comes from either local donations, local manufacturers, or uh, food rescue um, in the various mm -hmm. small communities. Right, but in the U.S., some, a lot is coming from uh, programs that the federal government runs where things might be shipped over a long yep. distance to get to a food bank. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the food banks are buying food. Mm -hmm. They're getting food from the government in the United States. They're not in Canada. Uh, and they're getting donations. They're getting donations from individuals, and then they're getting bigger donations mm -hmm. and trying to rescue food. What, who's, who is donating sort of at the corporate or institutional level? Yeah, I think just in terms of donations, it, it could be any distributors or manufacturers of food. Right, uh, or farmers. Or farmers, uh, a lot of like restaurants. Yeah. And then I think what we've seen a lot in some of the work that we've done is that uh, organizations and food banks are thinking a lot more about food rescue and how can they not necessarily work with, with the large manufacturers or distributors, but work with these smaller grocery stores to take advantage of some of the food that, that could be wasted at that level. So there are food banks and then there are food rescue organizations, mm -hmm. which are a little bit different. And talk about some of the efforts in food rescue uh, and what those kinds of organizations are, are trying to do. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so food rescue is something that uh, when I started working with food banks, I wasn't too familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, so that was something that, that we kind of got acclimated to relatively quickly. Um, essentially, at, at kind of a high level, food rescue is, uh, or, or food rescue in practice, is the food banks... Uh, going to local distributors, going to local manufacturers, uh, grocery stores, smaller uh, restaurants, uh, and looking for food that is at or near expiry uh, to be received into and then distributed out of their facilities. Um, I think what we've also seen uh, with a lot of the food banks is just how much resources and how much time and uh, effort it takes to execute upon this food this right. food rescue. Right. Donations can range from a full truckload of pallets for manufacturers right. to uh, a couple boxes of food that is donated to, to a local grocery store. Right. So it just takes a lot of time uh, and transportation resources, right. sortation resources at the food yes. bank that they don't necessarily have to be able to, you know, maybe uh, generate a small amount of uh, ready food to be distributed to, to the public. Yes. Dan, given all the things you saw in the World Wildlife Fund project, um, what were some of the, like, the complexities of saving the food? Like, we saw a lot of food waste, but then why was it hard to save it? Yeah, certainly to connect directly to, to Isaac's point right there, what we saw at the store level is just the logistics of trying to schedule hiccups from these food rescue organizations was too much 
for them to be able to manage if they had an order they basically got their three boxes of they, they repurpose banana boxes and throw whatever food they they, they capture um, that ends up getting kind of food bank let's say right. as, a, as an adjustment out of their inventory and they're ready to, to send it out the door if that pickup van doesn't doesn't show up or they show up and the boxes are on this shelf instead of this shelf and they can't find it and then they leave um, the food rescue organizations kind of upset because they spent their resources and then the store uh, can't necessarily manage on that level when they have you know so so many labor challenges themselves yes. and just trying to find time in their employees day like uh, you know any gr food major retailer uh, struggle to find the labor they need right now yep. and so to think about just doing all these additional tasks on top of all of the work they have to do um, to enable like two or three boxes to go at the door right at the time it's mm -hmm. expired because they've held that food as long as they possibly can to try and save uh, and, and sell the, the food either at full price or a discounted yes. price before the, it, they kind of are willing to let it um, be rescued. And so those are the, the kind of inherent challenges on the other side, at least at the retailer level. Right. And there's so, in the aggregate, there's a lot of grocery stores. Like it's a lot of food, at, but it's spread out at so many stores. And so the, mm -hmm. and so many different people have to be involved in the logistics of it. There's not a lot of economies of scale. And so that makes it hard. On the farm side, like you and I were on strawberry farms in California, which was pretty cool. And uh, there were a lot of strawberries on the ground, though that did not, that were perfectly fine. And Certainly. I picked some of them up and ate them all. <laughs> they were I ate way too many strawberries. I ate way too many strawberries. But um, the, a lot of strawberries did not make it into the clamshells and off no. the field. So, but then it's like, well, how, it's so much strawberries, how do we, but why is it so hard to get them out of the field and save them? So there's a few different reasons. One can be just the quality of the food at the time it's supposed to be ripe isn't exactly there, which can be due to, um, worse weather conditions earlier on in the season they didn't get enough chill time at night for whatever reason they're not perfectly ripe when the harvest passed through that section of of the uh, the field and that's one of the reasons but i would say the major reason reason and we have maybe a little bit more control over is truly the labor and what it is is it's just very very difficult work to pick a strawberry yes it's uh, extremely labor intensive. You're picking uh, a very bushy plant, maybe, maybe less than a foot off the ground, and you're doing back-breaking work all day long, and then you're also being paid by a piece rate. And so you're getting a base salary plus the, the amount of clamshells that you're, you're picking for that day. And so if you ask the worker to slow down so that they can capture more of the fruit to not miss to, any to I not miss any it. on the plant it's leafy you got to check behind the, you know the further um you know behind the leaves what you're going to miss if you ask them to do that it's such a competitive labor environment that they will walk off that farm and go to the farm next door who's willing to pay them to pick as fast as they can so they can make you know their their better hourly salary right there's so much complexity to uh, the pract the practicality, like practical, physical efforts of moving things and getting things out of the ground and moved around. And so mm -hmm. I think sometimes people will wave their hands and just say, like, 
oh, well, we can use all this wasted food for to serve hungry people. And you're like, ah, have you really seen all the logistics, all yeah. of the stuff that and goes the into the food supply chain? It's even if you captured it at the farm, you still need to distribute that food and get it into all the mouths that you want to feed, yes. which are everywhere, right? which are closer to the, where the retailer stores are. Right. But, you know, that's, that's food that's much more at risk of going bad very quickly right. and... You know, there's the logistics of managing the, the handoff to the rescue organizations. Right. right. Or some solutions that are like, you know, we were looking at the strawberry piece and um, someone said, well, what about gleaners? We could have like, ch you know, charities that want to glean. And it was like, okay, the volume of strawberries that is being grown is so enormously huge compared to the number of like volunteers who might be willing to do that. And it's backbreaking work, as you said. So it's just like these are really out of scope or on the food banking side or food rescue side. Uh, you know, the, gr the the whole, like all the grocery stores in the United States and in Canada, like they produce a lot of waste. And then if you're relying on a series of charities that are not as big, you know, they are not, uh, these charities are not nearly as big as as major grocers. Mm -hmm. So the, the scale sometimes is just like, the scale of the solution is just different than the scale of what's generating the waste. Um, do we have anything uplifting to say? Any any hopes? Any ways things we saw that would be innovative solutions to this problem? So, in terms of solutions, things that we found within the scope of the the World Wildlife Fund project, um, there were many. Yeah. Um, some of them address larger hotspots than others, and one of the more actionable ones are really at the retailer level. Mm -hmm. And um, at the retail level, what we can try and implement are things like dynamic pricing. Okay. And what so dynamic that? pricing is comes in many, many forms. It's as simple as kind of the, the produce manager at your local grocer who says, all right, this is on its way out here, let's mark this down. And so they roll back the price and that's dynamic pricing, is adjusting the price to, to try and drive the food to be sold before it goes bad. Um, and there's a lot of new ways um, with artificial intelligence, new ways with uh, electronic price tags where they can consider demand fluctuations in real time, price the, the uh, food to go in real time and try and drive the sales and enable the, the product to be, um, to be sold before it gets to that point where um, you know it's, it's going to, uh, there's going to be an attempt to try and food bank it. But a lot of the time you might miss the, uh, the timing on the pickup. And right. so um, that's something that I'm excited about personally and I think um, has a lot of potential. There's been a lot of grocers, I think, in Europe and mm -hmm. some of the more green grocery stores in North America who have right. started to use that and it's uh, going to continue to, to grow as, a, as an actionable solution. I have one. I, I um, came across this organization and I haven't worked with them, but I had a nice chat with the fellow who runs it. Um, it's called Rethink Food in New York. And what I thought was interesting is they are doing two things that try to get at a logistical problems uh, in, in what we've been describing. So one is they pay restaurants. They pay restaurants to make food that's donated to charity. In other words, they're using kitchens that are that are idle. Like, so they say to the restaurants, if you've got kitchen space, that's not mm -hmm. being used. So it was like, okay, there's a way to try to have some supply chain infrastructure in this, the kitchen that, and then um, connect it with this charitable food network. And they're also running their own kitchen where they take 
donated food, so it can be like all different kinds of things show up, and then their chefs are able to convert that into into usable mm-hmm. meals because they're creative about how they, you know, run that kitchen. And I thought they were um, their their model. I don't know that they would say that they would think of it in the supply chain infrastructure way that we're thinking about it, but that's what it said to me was, oh, you found ways to try to um, find idle infrastructure mm-hmm. and make use of it. So that seems promising. Um, and there's a lot of food banks, food rescue organizations, I mean, many, many that are doing amazing work all the time and saving food, but I think sometimes the rhetoric can be a little over, uh, over pr- an over-promise about how that, uh, that we're going to... Uh, well, I used to say kill two birds with one stone, but I, I don't like that expression, and I recently learned um, feed two birds with one scone as a new um, replacement, a less violent replacement. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, you know, to some extent, I think food waste... It can it, obviously saving food can help feed hungry people. That's true, but it isn't. There's no free lunch, no pun intended. There's no you know it costs money, it costs time, and so it's like who who in this whole system is going to pay for it? Right. I think that's another big piece is the funding the funding streams and who's willing to pay to to save and to mm-hmm. move and to transform it, all the stuff in order to to keep it 